Welcome back to From the Bridge. I'm the Captain Rick Jones, and we have a terrific show for you today. My special guest is the talented and lovely Pam Hollander, one of the real talents in our business, who recently left Allstate after an impactful career there. We cannot wait to have her share a boatload, yes, that pun was intended, of wisdom for our audience. I'll also get back up on the soapbox with a strong opinion and tell you yet another place to eat on the road with Rick. Today we offer a lot of depth, so let's head to deep water. We're glad to have you along for the cruise. Several shows ago, in fact, it was one of our shows from last season, I talked about our losing a competitive shootout for a new account. In fact, we did not even make the finals But I reminded you all how much I learned from that experience by forcing myself to examine all we were doing and going back to the basics. The basics for any new business pitch involved is what I call the seven C's. They are, number one, competency. Number two, context. Number three, challenge. Number four, creative Number five, collaboration. Number six, communication. And finally, number seven, chemistry. We've been following that formula for the last 10 months to great success. In fact, we have added 11 new clients during this time and have not lost any old ones either. Yes, the basics really count. Starting today and for the next six weeks, we're going to take a broader look at each of those C's. So today, let's start with competency. Competency is always the starting point. If you can't prove you have the experience and expertise to do the job required, then there's no reason to go any further. Expertise is what you actually know how to do. I laugh at agencies that say they are experts in all things. I have to cry bullshit on that one. No agency can do everything, and that includes us. We understand where we have great expertise and where we don't. At Fishbait Solutions, we are really good at strategy because that's where effective programs begin. Bob Heisner, who runs our American Heritage Division, is absolutely the best strategist I have ever known. He makes us dangerous. And we excel in ideas. Without being arrogant, that's been the calling card of my entire career. Bigger and better ideas. And our CEO, Rob Temple, is brilliant at ideas. Now... I absolutely suck at details, but we have people and lots of them who excel in details. Our team often says, they said, yes, Rick, you can now leave the room before you screw it up. (laughs) Never have truer words been spoken. I'm not good at that, but we have people that are. We are also really good at sales because we listen very well and try to solve problems. Or as Rob says, we stitch together assets that solve these problems better than anything else you can do. 
We try to bring the exact correct asset or sponsorship entitlement or swim lane to the client and never try to fit a square peg into a round hole. That means sometimes you have to fold your cards if you don't have the perfect solution for a product or brand. We're in this for the long term, and we won't ever try to fool someone into something that is not great for their business. We also have great expertise in our specific verticals of our business. We focus on college sports, country music, outdoor sports like hunting, fishing, hiking, and camping food festivals and tourism, and sacred American historic sites. We understand the fans of our verticals because we are those people. It's our lifestyles that are reflected in these activities and passion points. You see, the college football fan is also a country music fan, and he hunts and fishes and eats barbecue and stands up for the flag. The middle American fan is our sweet spot. I like to think we are fan anthropologists for these specific fan segments. We like to say we're fanthropologists. Again, without arrogance, we believe we know these fans better than any other organization. Then there is experience. We have a lot of experience because like Farmers Insurance, We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. That's right. We have a lot of gray hair, or in my case, no hair, at our agency. Our team has worked on every sporting and entertainment event in the world. We've worked with major global corporations and small businesses alike. Then there is your actual track record. Let's talk about sales success. Let me read to you what I wrote about sales in my book, Analog Advice in a Digital World. This chapter is called Show Me the Tombstones. I am often asked how I evaluate salespeople. For me, it's all about actual performance. In the classic Clint Eastwood movie, Unforgiven, one of the characters, the uh, Schofield kid, acts like a hotshot gunslinger with tales about all of his skills and his kills. At a pivotal moment in the movie, when the group is in a gunfight, he finally reveals that he has never actually shot anybody. Eastwood tells him, you will today. (laughs) If you can sell... If this is a real skill you have with a proven track record, then don't tell me how you sell. Just take me to the cemetery and show me each of your victories, each of your personal tombstones. As my mama often said, if you've done it, it ain't bragging. But the flip side is also true. If you have not done it, perhaps you should just keep your mouth shut until you have. I've never been into woulda, shoulda, coulda. I prefer did. Did is a historical fact. Did leaves a mark. We're happy to take you to our cemetery. We've sold before and will continue to sell in the future. 
So how are your personal and collective competencies? They are your lead dog. Let's hope you have a great lead dog. Next week, we'll examine the next C, context. My guest today is extremely competent. Pam Hollander is simply one of the most talented people I know. And she marries that competency with style and class and a great demeanor. She led Allstate's successful corporate sponsorship programs for years and is now out on her own helping other brands and organizations. Let's welcome Pam to the bridge. Pam, welcome. Thank you. Well, I'd ask every guest to start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York. I grew up on Long Island in Oyster Bay, New York. That's interesting. Our guest last week, Ian Newfeld, also grew up on Long Island. And uh, we talked about, you know, how Long Island, I guess, was the original suburb. Um, you know, post World War II, mm-hmm. um, that's where all the GIs <laughs> re- so re- funny, yeah. re- relocated. Yeah. And and I, you know, people that haven't spent any time on Long Island don't realize what an interesting place it is. We've we've vacationed a couple of times on the North Shore, yeah, which is like going to a whole nother. It's like going to Europe in a lot of ways. I mean, it's still got <laughs> you know cornfields and wineries and fishing boats and all that. Yep. It's, it's everything that the Hamptons is not. <laughs> it's, right, exactly. It's pretty close exactly. to the Hamptons, but it's not the Hamptons. You know, it's really, exactly. really wild. So you uh, you grew up on Long Island. Where did you go to school? So I, I actually moved from Long Island when I was 12, and we moved out to Chicago. Okay. And so I did. Wow, you've um, been you know, there a I, long I, time now. Yes. Been here a long time now. Right, so did junior high and high school here, but then I always had that East Coast pull. And wound up going back to Syracuse for college, and I loved it. Just loved it. Yeah, I think Syracuse is a wonderful campus, wonderful place. Um, obviously, we've done so much work over the years from ESPN, and it seems like yes. every other person that works at ESPN went to Syracuse. Uh, yes, and I'm fortunate to be on the board of the Falk School of Sport Management, so I get to interact with these, you know, former. You know, the alumni who are literally, I think, half of the board is is ESPN. It's hysterical. Yes. Well, I know Rick Burton's there. And, um, you know, Rick's an old friend. And, of course, David Falk is an old friend. And and they've done – they've continued to do – pretty amazing work um in that uh, sports management program and yeah and obviously i'm an acc guy and once syracuse <laughs> joined the acc we've spent a lot yep. of time up there uh, in the carrier dome and uh, yeah and then jim and julie Bayheim were good friends of ours too from the uh, basketball coaching days and so i've got a a real warm spot in my heart uh, also for uh, for syracuse now in chicago chicago is um uh, I've always said Chicago is a big city with manners. It's um, yes. it's a city yes. of neighborhoods. Where in Chicago did you live? So I so I I live in the same town that we moved to, which I never thought I would do, Rick. But I'm in the northern suburbs, 
called Highland Park. Okay. Love and Park. never, yep. Yep, yep, it's beautiful. And never thought I'd see myself back in this town, but I got to tell you, it is the best thing that we did. But I was also one of those crazy people who, when I did live in the city, I was doing that ridiculous reverse commute out to the suburbs for work. So we finally had to bite the bullet and make the move to the suburbs. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I remember when we had an office in Greektown, which was, oh, yeah. which is a neat community and we, oh, I love we would it. spend that time and, and, but candidly making the commute into the city, you know, yeah. you flying to O'Hare or flying to Midway and then yeah. gridiron, uh, you know, gridlock all the yes. way into the city. It was crazy, but I, I do love Chicago. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite favorite cities always has been always will be now did you yeah. major in marketing communications uh no Syracuse? i didn't okay. strangely enough um you know i i sort of took a, a left turn after graduating college and went into the, the world of communications i actually studied elementary education so i graduated with a degree uh able ser- to that, teach that has served you well for with the adults you have to deal with because well, yes exactly rick so it's not like i threw my degree away exactly that's what i tried to convince my parents <laughs> i love that it yeah. was not for naught. i i just it is definitely a skill that i continue to use as as a leader, as a mom, whatever it is, I, uh, yeah, so I did, I graduated with an, an LED degree, um, thinking I wanted to be a teacher and you know what? It was the furthest thing from my mind. Although there were so many aspects of, of teaching. I loved to write. Um, I loved speaking and, and being up in front of the, the room of students. Um, so there are so many pieces of, of my education that I was really able to pull through into, into my career. My wife went to, uh, what I would affectionately call a girl's school. And she corrects me and says, it's a women's college, of course, but we, we would laugh that she went to Agnes Scott in Atlanta and she got to her senior year and her daddy said, uh, this is all really good, but what, what are you planning to do when you get out? Cause this degree doesn't, you know, what's your job? And she quickly went back in the last two semesters of her senior year, got certified as a teacher and, um, yep. and, and ended up off and on teaching over, you know, 30 years. Um, yeah. and she taught first grade and she's been great with me when I would communicate by saying, <laughs> Rick, you, you need to draw them a pie chart. You know, you need, you need to dumb this down to where they can, they can get it. So I'm the least I'm, common denominator. Right? It is. And I'm certain that your, uh, your, uh, you know, education led you to be able to do that. So you get out of college and you don't go teach. What do you do? Right. So, um, you know, what, what do I do? I, I went and spent the summer in Europe and backpacked across Europe and realized, huh, maybe I should look for a job now. And it's a little hard to look for a job in teaching when it is August. So I scrapped that plan and actually wound up finding an internship job at a public relations agency. And that was the start of my career in communications. And I never looked back and I loved it. You know, just it, loved it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I did a summer thing. I had been a coach. And um, Charlotte and I got married, and I th- thought I was going to go to Wake Forest and be Carl Tacey's number one assistant, and he re- mm-hmm. he, re- he resigned. Uh, he quit, <laughs> and I don't have a job. And, and fortunately, I was able to get a job at Georgia Tech, but mm-hmm. I wasn't making any money. And my boss at Georgia Tech was a guy named Norman Airy, and he went over to Bob Cohn's agency, Conan Wolf, that later mm-hmm. merged with Burson Marsteller. Burson, yeah. Yep. And, uh, 
and and Norman brought me to to Conan Wolf there. So I I that's where I started my communications business and my business in sports marketing was at a PR firm. So you go become an intern. Was this a shop in Chicago? It was actually in the northern suburbs. Um, it was a small shop, but I really learned sort of like to cut my teeth on media relations. And it was just, you know, they just put us to task in terms of just, it was like dialing for stories. That's all we did. And so I wrote press releases and tried to pitch them all day long. Um, and I lasted there about two years. So I was an intern and then got hired on full time. So spent about a year there as an, as an actual account executive and then worked my way up to different agencies in the Chicago area. So I left there and went to an agency called Margie Korshak, and that's where I worked on a ton. She had a ton of entertainment clients. And so I worked on, you know, clients from um, all the Broadway shows that would come to Chicago. Um, I worked on McDonald's and did a ton of work with uh, Michael Jordan back then, because if you recall, and now I'm going to date myself, but if you recall, um, McDonald's did have a burger named after Michael Jordan at the time. And, uh, we did a ton of launch for the product. I worked on his golf tournament. Um, so that again, got me into the world of sports early on, but again, like you through the public relations lens. Um, and then I, after that went and worked at Burson Marsteller. So similar upbringing to you, Rick. Harold Burson. Oh, lovely guy. I mean, Iconic, a lovely guy. iconic, yes. a gentleman, yes, brilliant. Harold Burson, the times that I had a chance to be with him, he had this uncanny ability to make you believe that you were the most important person he talked to that day. Yes. I, I mean, amazing. This guy had yes. talked to kings and queens and yeah. captains of industry and political figures and all that, but he would take a lowly young account executive and 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 actually make you feel valuable. I, I, yeah, I, I learned I from that. I, I learned a yes, lot from that. He, um, and I don't know if he just was so brilliant at studying who he was going to be speaking with that day, and he just he remembered everything. So to your point, he, he'd remember, he remembered my name. He remembered the accounts I worked on. So unless someone was whispering in his ear, it doesn't matter. Um, it made me feel very important at the time. You know, it was interesting because we'll segue into some of the sponsorship stuff that you did, but we, yeah, we recently lost coach Bobby Bowden and uh, I was, yes. li- I was listening to one of his former players, Danny Cannell on satellite radio. And, and Danny reminded everybody that coach Bowden had a lot of great characteristics, but the one that wasn't so great was he never remembered anybody's name. (laughs) And he he said, if you weren't a starter at Florida State, he didn't know your name. He didn't know you. I mean, you you play for him, he didn't know your name. And he said he would call everybody Buddy. So, you know, every player he didn't know his name, Buddy. Everybody, every student, Buddy. Everybody that you moved. And and I remembered we did some things with Coach Bowden over the years after he retired. And and, and every time I would see him, he'd say, hey, Buddy, because he <laughs> he didn't remember my name, but here we had Harold Burson that seemed to remember everybody's name, yeah. which was pretty wild. Yeah. So, how long were you yeah. at Burson? I was at Burson for five years um, before I got a call from a recruiter saying, "Hey, Allstate is looking to build out their marketing department. Would you be interested in having a conversation?" And I took the call. You know, and Pam, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I've always felt like 
and I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke. I've always felt yeah. like you understood agencies. Yes. And now I know why. Because yes. you had oh, come from that. Yes. 100%. And it's really funny you say that. You know, when I, when I was looking to hire people also on my team, I tended to surround myself with others who also came from some kind of agency environment. And I'll tell you why, because I don't think you can teach someone client service mentality unless you've literally lived it. Um, and even when you are, you know, brand side, you are still serving internal clients and you need to understand the nuances of how to do that. And I think having worked in an agency just trained me really well. I've seen over the years, very, very, very few people be able to jump from the corporate side back to the agency side had they not started it at an agency. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't understand that you're really in a subservient role. Your, your, 100%. your job is to serve. And even like you said, in your own internal communications department at Allstate, you were serving others. You, oh, yeah. You were an agency within the yeah. environment. Um, well, Allstate, yeah, Allstate's one of the great iconic companies. I mean, yeah. you know, I guess it started with Sears. Uh, it did. Years it did. Ago. It's born out of and, Sears. Yeah. Yep. And uh, named and after a tire, a, a, a radial tire was called an Allstate tire. And that's where the beginnings. And I think the first Allstate agency was like under an escalator in a Sears department store. Well, for someone that had spent so much time in Chicago, I, I think going to work for an iconic brand like that had to be pretty special. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really, really proud of everything that I was able to accomplish there. No well, doubt. you did a lot of stuff. I want to, you know, because this is about sponsorship, this podcast, yes. you know, you did a, a lot of great work, obviously, on the PR side to begin with. But then sponsorship fell under your wing. And y'all, y'all did some, I mean, amazing things. No more, you know, the, yeah. the, the nets. Who would have thought yes. you could brand, yeah. you know, yeah. goalpost nets? And, right. and they're perfect because you hit... The hands. I mean, no doubt. Are, are you no in doubt. good hands? I mean, if you, if you yeah. kick it, you hit it right down the middle. You did that. You, yeah. You had you know deep, deep, deep um, activities in college football. You know, from the yes. entitlement of the Sugar Bowl to being a CFP. But one of the ones yeah. that I'm proud mm -hmm. of that you did that you fortunately bought from me. Yes. Was the All State AFCA Good Works teams, and and yeah. that's turned out to be. A terrific program. And then w during the time y'all spent in this NCA corporate partner, you replicated yeah. that program with yeah, the NABC and the WBCA. Talk a little bit about that program because that was really kind of the intersection of PR and calls marketing back with oh, sponsorship. Yeah. You know, you, you nailed it on the head, Rick. You know, that is a, a program that truthfully was such a win, 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 you know, um, to be able to line a line a brand which stands for, literally stands for good, the good hands and doing good. Um, and to, again, align that brand with student athletes who are known for doing good in their community, off the field. I mean, it was, it, it truly was the perfect intersection. Um, and it's a program that just so proud of how it grew year over year over year. And when we had the ability to expanded beyond football because of our relationship with the NCAA and do it for both men's and women's college basketball athletes. I mean, it's truthfully, I, I, 
I would point to that as one of the proudest programs that I've been affiliated with over, over my career, truthfully. I can remember being at the Women's Final Four one year, and, <clears throat> and Landry Jones was the All-American quarterback at Oklahoma. Yeah. He was there on behalf of his wife. He was carrying mm-hmm. her suitcase because yeah. she was on the team. And yeah. I, re- I remember they going through all the things. You know, I started a bone marrow foundation, or I did this. And, yeah. that. and I remember my wife turning to me and saying, I'm such a failure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Truthfully, I mean, the stories. I got, I know the stories that these student athletes would tell and what they did and they built, you know, they started their own charities in third world countries. And I'm, I'm looking at my, at my kids going, oh my God, what am I doing as a parent that I'm not encouraged you to do these kinds of things daily? Um, but these, yeah, these athletes were such inspirations and their stories are, um, will forever live on. And again, to affiliate a brand with that was so important. Um, well, and we did also, everything yeah, we could to yeah. make the student athletes at the center of it. You did. And, you know, but one of the things I liked you, that you did at the Sugar Bowl every year was you, you did a, you did a, a, a cause program. You, you, you had those yeah. young men yeah. actually participate, whether it was cleaning up in the ninth ward or planting yeah. a garden someplace. Yeah. I mean, and, and what I loved about them is they were all, not only willing to do it, they were eager to do it, which really said something about their character. Um, Yes. Yes. I mean, again, we tried to pull together programming that really was at the center of what these kids were known for doing. So community service was going to be something that was very important to them and to us. And we did every year down in New Orleans, we'd pull together a um, you know, work with a nonprofit to do some kind of community give back service project and the AFCA Good Works team students were so willing to help out. There were oftentimes we'd do things that we would do coaching clinics with um, with youth and to see these, you know, you know, five year olds, eight year olds on the field, just looking up to these student athletes was just incredible. And, and remember, Rick, you know, the the AFCA Good Works team athletes, they ranged from, you know, you know, those who were Heisman Trophy winners on down to kids who you probably would never have heard of because they went to, you know, a, a school that was really never known for for college football, but they were being honored for all the work they did off the field. And it, it, it was a really good common denominator. Yeah, it was a great uh, mixture of D3 yeah. kids. And yep. but you also had some premier oh, yeah. athletes that made that team. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Was, and if you, you know. think about if you think about the alumni of AFC Good Works team members, I mean, they are uh, kind of the who's who of, of football. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and Pam, while you were there, y'all had y'all had so many memorable ad campaigns around college yeah. football. I remember the, the <laughs> well, you mentioned Bobby Bowden. We did one, you know, around yes. Bobby Bowden. It was one of our, our yeah. That was the Bergwood, wasn't it? Where yes, he was like, exactly. Oh, yes, where he, where he basically says, it's Bobby Bowden. I mean, he, I think he opens yeah. his door and it gets knocked yes, off because he's exactly. jumping out to see Coach Bowden. And it was, <laughs> it was so good. And then the mayhem, the whole yeah. idea yeah. of college football is mayhem. I have a shirt that I wear regularly that I picked up at the CF championship in new orleans <laughs> that says football is mayhem football and, is mayhem and uh yeah. and, and you know people see that shirt all the time and they laugh because they get it they understand they get it they get it yes and, and what i liked you know one of the key things i wanted to point out to people listening today is y'all didn't do a million different things y'all no. y'all, y'all did a select few things yeah. and went deep 
and yes. and wide and yes. and added value all the time. Talk about that because you were in a position that, as an iconic American brand, people probably felt like you were an automatic teller machine that just could buy right. everything. So yeah. you probably saw everything. What what made college football work so well for y'all? So there's a couple of things, and I really like that you pointed out the fact that um, we decided to go deep rather than broad in terms of our sponsorship portfolio. And quite honestly, that was that was by my design. I knew that, um, you know, when it came to budgets, um, we we couldn't really compete with the competitors in the insurance marketplace. Um, so in order to really carve out our own white space we needed to truly own something from top to bottom. And in order to do that, we had to leverage the heck out of every asset that we aligned with. Um, you're right. I got bombarded with sponsorship proposals and it was, it was hard to figure out, you know, sometimes where we wanted to place our bets, um, and truly make an impact. But college football was really unique. First of all, um, it's a long season, right? So we could be in market for a long time it had all of the elements we were looking for in terms of really strong media. Um, we knew that eyeballs would be tuning in. And it had the right, more importantly, had the right audience for us, which, which was not college students. It was alumni. And that's what we were trying to reach. Um, and again, given the fact that Allstate is in every you know, location across the U.S., there's a college basically everywhere in the U.S. So we were able to align with those organizations and you know, you mentioned before about the the field goal net program. That was just while it probably was the most iconic, uh, you know, program what we of what we did. It was only one piece of the relationship that we had with those universities. And so again, we did so much in market trying to align our local agents with those universities, and and again, take advantage of every part of those of those relationships that we could. We talked about the fact that you had an agency background yeah, and that allowed you to work so effectively with your agencies. But Pam, you did something that I have admired and I've never seen anybody else do it. You used two different agencies, (laughs) one for strategy and one for execution. And they were in the same space. And it's brilliant. Yeah. And and I don't know why everybody else doesn't do it. Talk about that and how that worked for you. You know, it was, I I wish I could say we set out by design to do that, but it sort of just sort of evolved over time. And it it came down to where, where I felt and we felt the strengths of those agencies lied in terms of serving us as a client. Um, And, you know, technically there were five agencies we worked with and we, kind of called the you know, every day are, are the five families here. Um, and it was, it was two agencies in both the sponsorship um, space. It was a PR agency, advertising and media. And all five of those agencies, um, I, I kind of required them to take their agency hat off when they sat around the table with us. Um, and they just became an extension of, of my team. Um, and I didn't care where the good idea came from. Um, let's say the media agency had a really good idea, but it turned out to be something that the PR agency was then going to, um, implement. Um, but the use of two agencies in the, in the sponsorship space really, really worked to our benefit. And I will tell you, they became, they became, um, 
colleagues of one another. And there was a very clear dividing line in terms of roles and responsibilities. So there was no conflict. There was, um, but they both made each other better. Um, and I, you know, I, I loved that time when both those agencies were working together for the benefit of, of the Allstate brand. It really worked well. Well, I also think it keeps you out of those self-serving silos. You know, a lot of times a strategy agency will recommend something because it's going to make them have bigger billings in the execution. And and that becomes a conflict of of interest. And you you stayed away from that. I I also like the fact that, you you know, you required and, and, and they acquiesced to just leave your ego at the door when when you come yeah, here, just, just check it in the closet, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah. c- come on in here and be part of the team. Yeah, and, and and I I just admired the cohesiveness. Yes, of yeah. all of that. Uh, yes. that I'll be honest with you is not replicated at many places. I, I still find there are too many silos. Yes. And, and they're fi- internal silos fighting for resources and fighting instead of saying, whoa, 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 let's put everybody around the table and let's come up with the idea that works for everybody. Yeah. And if we do great work, there's going to be funds for everybody. Um, there's going to be enough to go around. Yeah. But if we don't do good work, you're all going to be gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, I mean, truthfully, my philosophy is good ideas are going to get funded, but we got to have the good idea. And I don't care where it came from. We just need a good idea. And then we can figure out which agencies we would need to rely on for implementation? Well, I've always said, and I, I've been an agency creature my whole life, there, there are no great agencies. There are only great clients. Yeah. Uh, clients that let you do great work, uh, yeah. put you in a position to do great work, will listen to ideas. I've always felt like some of the biggest ideas probably make you uncomfortable when you first hear them. Because yes. they're big ideas, and then they're you big can, ideas. and then you yeah. think about them and go, "Hmm, that make that makes perfect sense to be able to do yeah. that from that yeah. standpoint." We got a few more minutes. Switch gears a yeah. little bit. You, uh, I live down here in what I call God's country, down here in the <laughs> Low Country, and and you you make a pilgrimage down here on a regular basis. You go to Litchfield, I do. and uh, I do. you're down here to Polly's in that area. Talk about what makes that place so special for you and your family. Uh, I wish I could sum it up, Rick. First of all, it's so unlike anything that you know I I see and experience living in the Chicagoland area. Um, and I, you know, look, it's a combination of just the the way that 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 community and land is and the location and um, just right on the water. It is so, it's so relaxing, so spectacular, but it's also the people I'm there with, right? So yes, we've been making this pilgrimage. My family, um, there's, there's actually, there's nine families and we descend on uh, Litchfield Beach every summer. Um, In fact, we didn't even miss it during COVID. Some families chose not to go, but a couple of us still went and uh, we rent two houses and it is just, it is heaven on earth. Let me tell you, um, just from eating the local cuisine, you know, we sit there and, you know, we take turns as families cooking each night, but we always stick with the low country cuisine. Um, so the food, the seafood is always fresh. It's so wonderful. Um, you know, we, we kayak, we fish, we crab, we paddleboard, we, you know, you name it. We are, we are enjoying um, every, every aspect of, uh, you know the sand and the and the sun and the water there. It is a pretty special place, you know. Oh, Pauly, Pauly's Island was one of the first tourist 
destinations in America. Yeah. There were planters yeah. in the 1700s yeah. <laughs> that had a, 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 a they, they fried fish. They had a club there. And yeah. um, it, I mean, the colonial era. And, uh, and I love the title or the tagline for Pauly's Island. It's arrogantly shabby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which so sums it up. And I, just, I just think that is yeah. one of the great yeah. taglines. And this little strip of land that we stay on, this lit, this, this oh, Litchfield strip. special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is beautiful. And truthfully, like when it's, it's, we'll walk down to the point and when it's low tide, Rick, we just walk over to Polly's. Just yeah. like in, yeah. in the middle of the, like we'll just walk over. It is, that's how close we were. Yeah, it, it's, it is a, the low country is a very special, special oh, place. Beautiful. And it's not easy to get to. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's, I grew up listening to what we call Carolina beach music and Carolina beach yeah. music is just R and B. I mean, it's, it's music out of Philadelphia <laughs> and Chicago and other places. But what happened was you couldn't get to these beach resorts. And so what went on the jukebox in 1948 never came off. Yeah. And, and so people grew up listening to the same kinds of music in that era because it was hard to get to. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not you're 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 a long ways from 95. I mean, you have to get no over to Litchfield. It's it's a yeah. it's a chore. You got to take back yeah. roads to get there. Yeah. I think and that's it's what so makes beautiful. It neat. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I yeah. love it. I, I hope, love driving through I, those communities. I hope we take care of it. I hope yes, we never we see, too. you know, too many too. big, gigantic condos that ruin the the ambience and all that. Well, Amen. let's talk about what's next for you. You had a, yeah. you've had a great career as an agency creature. You had a great career as a corporate creature. I know you're yeah. not done. What What do you want to do next? Oh, I'm still figuring that out. I still want to figure out what I want to do when I grew up, truthfully. Um, you know, it, it, whatever it is and wherever it is, I'm looking at something that has the intersection of sports and social impact. You know, you you started the conversation off with everything that I was doing with the AFSA Good Works team. And those are the types of programs, campaigns, um, you know, uh, affiliations that I, I, I am jo- I'm drawn to and I want to continue doing. Um, again, it's a win, win, win for everyone involved. And I find that it's more meaningful. And I'm at a point in my career where um, I get to pick and choose and do something that is truthfully um, purposeful for me. And that's where that's where I'll find myself. I'm also looking at doing some potential teaching in higher ed. You know, we talked about my background in education and I've done a ton of uh, guest lecturing at various uh, universities. And that's another area that I I think I want to start pursuing. So I think I one of the, that. you know, I think one of the things, one of the positives that's come out of COVID and come out of George Floyd and come out of a lot of the DEI initiatives yeah. is that young people do know they now have a voice Yes, and that they can make a difference. And, yes. you know, if you look at, I, I love what some of these all state, AFCA Good Works team members have gone on to do (laughs) with their lives and the ability to tell young people, you can be part of the solution here. You you have a chance to make a real impact on our society. And I think the combination of you having that, that experience in that area and the ability to communicate like you can do and be able to get young people to understand that yeah. there is a chance for us all to be better 
Um, no it, doubt. And sports just gives you gives them that platform to do it. It does. And now in an yes. NIL world, they might even get paid to do it, which is going yes, to be kind exactly. of interesting too. I mean, so <laughs> exactly. I think the, the inter, the, yeah. the, this, this new intersection of purpose married to name, image, and likeness opportunities yep. may lead to some really, really big things. Well, I know this. You've had lots of great projects that are now in the rearview mirror, but I know there are more to come. And, and Pam, yes. I can't thank you enough for being with us today from oh, the Rick, bridge. Thank you. Thank you. I cherish our friendship, and I really appreciate it. Okay, let's get back up on the old soapbox. The word for today is reconciliation. Our associate minister, Steve Gaither, recently wrote a parson-to-person editorial in our church bulletin talking about how the news media seems to be more about dividing us than uniting us. I believe we all need to do more to bring us together than to divide us. Steve quoted the author and theologian Edwin Searcy, who wrote in his book, Feasting on the Word, that, quote, the church is a holy experiment in reconciliation. I believe we need a lot more reconciliation in our society today. We can learn to speak our minds without being so mean-spirited. We human beings are never going to agree on everything, but we can disagree without being disagreeable. See, charity is not only what we give to those less fortunate than ourselves, it's also how we behave towards those who think differently than we do. Let's be more charitable in every sense of the term. And by doing that, we will practice reconciliation. And that's my view. It's time for another On the Road with Rick segment. People are always asking me about my favorite restaurants here in Charleston. Well, one of my very favorites is a local place with very few tourists. It's the Marina Variety Store at the Charleston Marina right on the water. Let's start with breakfast. Breakfast has always been my favorite meal of the day. They've got eggs, grits, sausages, bacon. They even have fried fish for breakfast. My favorite is a seafood omelet with shrimp, scallops, and crab meat with absolutely perfect grits and local sliced tomatoes. But where they really excel is their fried seafood. I think they make the very best fried seafood in all of Charleston. They fry up local shrimp, flounder, and oysters, fried to perfection without that greasy and heavy aftertaste. Marry that with local vegetables and a big glass of sweet tea, And you have a truly magical meal. So the next time you find yourself in the Holy City, check out the Marina Variety Store. Just don't tell the other tourists. We're out of time today. Thanks to my very special guest, Pam Hollander. Please come back to see us next week from the bridge.